You are listening to the Equip Podcast. This weekly course seeks to equip our church, and we pray it can help you as well. Check out more resources at rockycreek.church. So uh, as we continue on tonight, we're going to be talking about a topic that you're probably going to think sounds super, super boring, okay? But it's going to be awesome, okay? Once you have like good hope and high intentions here, okay? But it's about literary genres, okay, in the Bible, right? Which is like, what in the world is this a snooze fest? Uh, you know genres are different types of literature, right? And if you're not aware of this, the Bible is put together in different types of literature. And if you're not careful, what you can find yourself doing is thinking through that this thing is this, uh, I thought it was supposed to be like this, and if you're not at least aware of what type of book you're reading within the Bible, you might actually miss the meaning of it, okay? Let me tell you practically how this, this rolls out. So, um... Uh, years ago, I don't know if you've ever had this opportunity where someone, uh, if you've been door-to-door witnessing, right, if you've gone through a neighborhood and started knocking on the door and asking people questions, you know that's a very challenging and, and hard thing to do. Uh, how many of you have ever had that happen to you where somebody came on your door and wanted to share their faith with you? Anybody? Okay. Uh, let me ask you a question. How many of you wasn't a Christian? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you was a Jehovah's Witness? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you was a Mormon? Raise your hand. Okay. Some of you are like, I get those two confused. Okay. Which one is it? Right. Um, so years ago, it was an interesting conversation we had. Um, I was uh, weed eating my front yard on a Saturday, my Saturday, and somebody touched my shoulder, and I just came around and almost took the guy's head off with a weed eater. You're just not supposed to be close to me with power tools. Okay. You know, any type of landscaping equipment, but. Uh, Anyway, uh, it was a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses that were going down the road and stopped at my house and said, hey, we'd like to talk to you about you know, the Bible. And I was like, oh, I've always wanted to know more about the Bible. That'd be awesome. And, I, and, they, and they said, um, and they said well, do you, you know, know enough? I said, I don't know enough. That's for sure. I said, let me go get some chairs. We'll go sit down. And so we uh, got the shade and got them some water. And I said, let's, let's sit down. Let's talk a little bit. They didn't ask me what I did. They didn't ask me where I stood. I just went in. Okay, so we were having a great conversation. So I'd ask a lot of questions. Like, that's interesting. So now you're telling me blah, blah, blah. Now, what does that mean by that? Oh, that's a great question. They get excited. And they, they keep going. They keep going. And then at some point, uh, you know, they're talking about that. And Jehovah's Witness, that there's this belief that 144,000, a literal 144,000, is going to go, you know, to kind of that, that special, special spot in heaven and whatnot. And so I just asked a simple question. I just said, so do you believe there's a literal 144,000? They said, a literal. I said, so let me ask you a question. You two guys are here together. Are you worried that that guy beside you might be getting the last spot? And they're like, what? And I said, come on, you've got to be thinking about it. And he's like, no, we don't think like that. I said, oh, come on. You don't mean to tell me there's 144,000 spots. And maybe if you're better than him, you get in. But if he's better than you, you like, y'all are comp- competing, right? And they're like, no, we, we don't think of it like that way. I said, well, I would. I said, I'd be all about competing to get that last spot because that's a lot of people. And, and they said, well, you know what? You don't think that way. You just do what God's called you to do and, and you hope that you're there. I was like, not me. If I'm working my way to heaven, I'm going to work all out. Like, I'm going to go for it. And I said, so do you think, I said, so you, you're, you're getting this from the book of, is it Revelation is what you're saying? They're like, yeah. I said, so is Revelation, I asked a question. I said, is Revelation a symbolic book or a literal book? And he said, what's well, literal? 144,000 literal. I said, so is all the book symbolic or is, uh, is all of it literal? He said, well, all of it's literal. I said, because somebody showed me one time, I said, I, I was reading actually the book of Revelation, and it talks to this one church in Asia where it says Jesus said that uh, if they didn't change, he was going to come and move their lampstand from among them. 
And, and I said, so was Jesus literally going to do that? And the guy started dying laughing. He goes, is Jesus Christ going to steal a lamp from a church? I said, that's the question I got for you, bro. I said, that's the serious question I got. And he said, okay. He said, maybe some of it is symbolic. I said, you did it. There you go. Look. So you mean to tell me that some of it's symbolic, some of it's literal, and you're the determining factor of what, why that is? Now, that guy didn't come back the next time. <laughs> There was another guy that came back the second time, uh, and then eventually, after about three, they kept changing the rotation of who was coming in. Eventually, um, I had one lady who came in, and she's like, I've never thought about Jesus that way. That's a really good question, because I just started going on the path, whatever, and so anyway, the other guy says, we got to go. we got to go now. Uh, and then eventually, they, they, I found out that they, uh, I gave them a, a list of questions that I, I wanted to have answered before I could go any further with them. And they said, we don't know the answers to this, but we can talk. We actually, this is exciting for us because we can write our supervisors and they'll actually give us the I said, okay, here's the questions, whatever. Well, they never came back. One day, the kids are looking in the window. They're like, hey, daddy, those guys just passed by our house and went to the next house. I went, what? So I go out of the house running after them, okay? Like, hey, I've got questions. Nobody's coming. To, and they, and they, they, they told me, they said, we've been told not to come to your house anymore. And I was blacklisted from them. So I was, uh, I was very, very frustrated by this. Um, now, now you go, why, why are you telling me this story? Because why are there, what are the literary genres in the Bible? The book of Revelation is a book that's called apocalyptic literature. It talks about the end time. And it is very, very much so symbolic. Okay? So when you talk about symbolism, that means that if you read it as literal things, you can find yourself doing damage if you're not interpreting it correctly. You following me? So you can jump into something going, oh, I think it's like this, but if you're not really clear, you can find yourself believing and hurting a lot of different situations that can be dangerous. So tonight, uh, this is going to be a study in the table of contents of your Bible, okay? Which I promise you is one of the most exciting things you'll ever do. Because if you get a picture of this, you're going to start understanding even better how we unpack, how we understand God's truth as you read through it. Because, if you think about it, the Bible is one book made up of how many smaller books? 66 smaller books that have distinct genres that are differing from each other. That means that sometimes you're reading something that's poetry. Sometimes you read something that's a story or a narrative. Um, sometimes you're reading prophecy. Well, to interpret the Bible accurately, we must understand the nature of genres and how the Bible is organized, okay? So if you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 1 for a brief moment. And um, by the way, Romans is, is a letter that Paul wrote um, to the church in Rome. Um, it's probably the uh, most, I'd say the, the deepest theological kind of, I would say, kind of letter that we have as far as how thorough it goes. But I'll also say this. Paul wrote to a certain group of people about a certain subject, and if you look at the book of Romans, trying to unpack every single thing about his theology, you're not going to get it all. He didn't write it like that. He wrote it to a letter to a specific people for a certain specific purpose. But at the beginning of it, he says some beautiful things to help us understand the nature of Scripture. It says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. Apostle means one who's sent out, okay? So he's a servant who's being sent out, Set apart for the gospel of God, listen to this, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power 
according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Christ Jesus, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a lot of wonderful things that we can kind of unpack there, but I want you to get this thing that he says in the first two verses primarily. He says he's been set apart for the gospel of God. Gospel means good news, by the way, okay? So the word gospel uh, would, would typically be when, it, when a king was making a declaration to tell people this. It, it would say something like this. The gospel of king so-and-so, and this would be the declaration. People would go through city to city. Da, 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 da. You know, here's the gospel. War is over. Your troops are coming home. It, it wasn't a... It wasn't a debate. It wasn't a conversation. It was news. Make sense? It was a declaration that the king was sending out to the people. Here's news of what just took place, and I want to cheer your heart with it. So this word, the gospel of God, is this. King's come to town and has a message for you. War is over. <laughs> Jesus Christ is one. There is victory to be found in him. And so you'd say, okay, so the gospel of God is about Jesus, but notice what verse 2 he says, which he promised beforehand through his prophets... In the Holy Scriptures, right? Concerning his son. Which means when you see the picture of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we realize this. This is not the first time the Bible has ever mentioned Jesus. He's been mentioned all along. In fact, that, that's where it comes down to that all of these prophets have been pointing to the son. Even if they couldn't, they didn't know his name. They didn't know exactly how he would die. They could see in faith that he was coming. And so all of the scripture, Genesis to Malachi, is pointing to Jesus, right? Matthew through John is speaking about Jesus' life. And Acts through Revelation is speaking about what the church is doing since he has departed and when he's going preparing for us as he returns. So if you think through it, there's moments all throughout scripture that we can see that are pointing to Jesus Christ. We mentioned a few weeks ago, when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, right? And it says that there are garments of skin that cover them. In their sin, in their shame, something had to die to cover them up, right? Okay? There's this picture of, he says to Satan, hey, you're going to be striking at the hill of her seed, which doesn't make sense. That, that speaks to that only there's going to be some birth that no man can get the credit for one day. And when you strike that man in the hill, he's going to crush your head. You think of a moment where... Some child that was born of a virgin will be struck in the heel would also be the defining blow to Satan and his work. It's Jesus on the cross, right? You look at different places like um, Abraham sacrificing Isaac, right? Okay. Um, a son follows his father up to a mountain. Along the way, he carries something upon his back. Does remember what that was? Wood. So a son is following his father with wood on his back, and it takes them three days to get to their journey. When they're there at that place, there is a, right before the knife goes down to kill the son, there is a substitute that comes in. It's a ram that's caught in the thicket, and the thicket is a bush that has certain items in it. Does anybody know what it is? Thorns. And just so happens the ram is not stuck in his side, not in his backside. It says the ram was stuck in his horns around. So the substitute had a crown of thorns uh -huh. stuck there. And then 
Isaac, who was on the place of sacrifice, comes back to life and goes down the mountain with his father yet again. You see, uh, I, I, I could do this. All, it's fun to do it all day, but we won't. Uh, just a couple more, right? Um, there is Judah in the end of Genesis. After Israel has all his kids, right? And they've beaten up Joseph and thrown him into slavery. And now all of a sudden there's going to be somebody else. They're going to have to get rid of Benjamin, who's the youngest, the baby. And he's worried what it's going to do to his father's heart if, if his baby brother doesn't come home to meet with his father. So what does Judah do? Judah says, take me instead. I'll take a spot. Oh, what do you mean? I don't want to bear what it would be like if my father, if this one doesn't come home to him. So I will take his place. Take me instead. Just, just so you're aware, out of all the 12 sons of Israel, the one tribe that Jesus came from, does anybody want to remember who he's from? The tribe of Judah. Throughout all these kind of places, throughout the Bible, you see this. There, there's a, a water in the rock. You remember there where uh, people are complaining in the wilderness, we're going to die out here. And, and God says, Moses, just go and strike the rock. He's like, I would rather take the staff and strike them. They've been complaining since we left Egypt, right? <laughs> They're the ones who deserve to get hit. What's the rock ever done? Just strike the rock. Where do you want me to strike it? In its side. What's going to come out of it? Water will flow from the perfect rock side when you strike it in the side. And it'll be life-giving to all the people. Remember what happened when Jesus was on the cross? Is he dead yet? I don't know. Stick him. Stick him with a spear and water comes out of his side. See, all along the way, there's all these places in the Old Testament that are saying, one story, one story, don't have his name yet, don't have the way it's going to roll out, but be aware, be attentive. And so Paul says to Romans, he says, look, he's promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. This is what the message has been about concerning his son descended from David, right? The, the rightful heir of the throne of David, the king of Israel, according to the flesh, was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So we, we see this. And really, unfortunately, we have taught people the Bible based on individual, separated, moralistic stories for years, right? So we mentioned last week, we have learned that Abraham has nothing to do with David, and David has nothing to do with Elijah, but they all have something to do. They're all pointing to Jesus. And the moment we start collecting all these things, the better ways that we can understand it. And the more that we understand their role in the whole book, the better that we'll understand. So if we look at the Bible's composition... Here's what we know. The Bible is one narrative of Scripture, right? Genesis through Revelation, it is one narrative. So the goal would be, can you tell the big picture story of the Bible? Can you say, you'd be like, well, I know things were good, then it got bad, then Jesus came and fixed it, and he's coming back. Well, that's a good start, right? Okay, you get the gist of the book if you can do that. But then all of a sudden when you start putting in where does David fit, where does Paul fit, it, it, you really see this, though, as one narrative. We also have two testaments in it, right? Two testaments called the what? The Old Testament and the New Testament. As we mentioned a few weeks ago, does anybody remember what a synonym is for the word testament? Anybody? Covenant. Great. Awesome. So covenant. There was the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant was made through the law and made through all the different covenants that are in the Old Testament. But then in the book of Jeremiah, it says there's coming a new covenant one day that I'm going to make with my people. And it's not going to be uh, laws of stone, right? It's going to be laws on their hearts. It's going to be changed. And so it's speaking, there's, a, there's an Old Covenant and there's a New Covenant. There's an Old Testament and there's a New Testament. So just so you guys know, 
if you do come into contact with someone who is of the Jewish faith, they would hold the Old Testament to be true and to be their Bible. But you know what would be the most offensive thing about that? That you would call it the Old Testament. It's just a testament. It's not old for them. It's the testament. They don't believe in the New Testament. So even at, at uh, when I taught um, world religions, and then I, they asked me to teach Old Testament and New Testament at a secular university, and I said, so what do you want me to... They said, this is an Old Testament class. And I thought, that's so funny that they would even call it that. You would think in a secular university, they call it, call it the Hebrew Scriptures, right? Or the law or something. They know it's, it's Old Testament, so everybody knows that. A Jew would take that offensively. Because they would say, Jesus is not the fulfillment of it. We don't need a New Testament. we got the Testament. That's all it is. But we see this not as competing things, but the Old Testament setting up the need and the work and prophesying about the person of Jesus where he fulfills the New Testament. And within those two Testaments, there are how many books? 66 books, right? 66. Some of which you know very well. Some of which, if you look at the table of contents, you go, oh yeah, I forgot about that one, right? Okay. There's some in there that are not as popular, and there's reasons why, but there are 66 books. Does anybody know how many Old Testament books there are? 39 Old Testament books, okay? That's why the left side of your Bible is a little bit thicker than the right side, right? Okay, 39 Old Testament books. The, the bigger books are in the Old Testament as well. So if you do your math, get out your calculator, that means that how many books are left in the New Testament? There are 27 New Testament books, right? So we've got two Testaments, 39 in the Old Testament. We've got 27 in the New Testament. Uh, and anybody can figure out how many chapters we've got? <laughs> okay. There are 1,189 chapters in your Bible, okay? 1,189 chapters, which is why if you, and you go, is that important to know? Well, the only thing is, is if you remember, um, we talked about this a few weeks ago, chapters were not introduced into the Bible until a few uh, hundred years ago, right? Verses were not introduced until a little bit time later. There's a 1,189 chapters in there. That's why if you think about how many um, chapters would I need to read in the Bible to read through the Bible and say a year? If you look at that, about three chapters, okay? It's about three chapters a day. Uh, some Bible reading plans would just say, just pick three chapters and just keep going through. But here's what you need to know. There are chapters like the one we read today, Psalm 131, that has three verses. And then there's a few earlier, Psalm 119, that's got 176 verses, I think it is. Okay, so they're not, all chapters are not created length equal, okay? There's 1,189 chapters, and there are 31,173 verses, Okay. I didn't write in the verses there on your notes. You have to sort of cram all that in there. 31,173 verses. That's a lot, folks. And just because we just like just to know these kind of things, right, to break down how many words are there in the Bible. I know you guys all know this, but I'll just, just for sake of information, 773,692 words contained in your Bible, right? And you go, what about my translation? In the original Bible, that's how many words there were, okay? That's how many words there are. That's a lot of words. Now, here's what's crazy. Do you really think, though, that with this, that all of these different books, all of these different verses, all of these different words speak to one message and one message alone? Comes together in one unified place. Because if you think about the Bible composers, here's what you know. If you're aware of this, the Bible is written by some very, very different people. Right? So in some ways it goes, there's no way this can work. And yet when it does, you realize there's someone else that's putting all of this stuff together. The Bible is written from kings to shepherds, right? Kings that write certain scriptures. Uh, there's also shepherds that write things. 
Uh, obviously, there, there's many kings that we know of. I'll say like Solomon is a, is a, is a, a king that writes uh, most likely most of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. There's a shepherd boy who eventually becomes a king. His name is what? His name is David. He, he writes. So you got a shepherd writing. you got a king writing. You realize you've got scholars down to fishermen, right? Scholars like Ezra, who are these brilliant scribes that are very much trained in different ways, and, and Apostle Paul and different ones like this, to fishermen, okay? Uh, like John, like Peter. Guys that like, you know, I didn't go to school for writing, but... <laughs> Kind of inherited the family business, but I'm going to put this to paper anyway. You got prophets to generals. You got prophets like Isaiah, prophets like Malachi, prophets like Hosea, to generals like Joshua. Um, have you, if you've ever been around a general, someone who's very steeped in military, sometimes they speak and think differently than, than preacher types, right? Okay, so we're like, I think I had a preacher that kind of acted like a general. Okay, maybe you have, right? Uh, there's differences, right? There's some very big differences. Think about it this way. Tax collectors to what? Doctors. Anybody know who the tax collector is? Yeah, Matthew was a tax collector. And you go, is that a big difference? Well, have you ever been on the phone with anybody from the IRS? Let me just ask you a question, okay? Um, sometimes uh, people in accounting speak a little bit different than, say, doctors, right? Have you ever, um, have you ever sat down with a doctor and a doctor began explaining what's, what you've been diagnosed with and you're going... So am I dying? <laughs> you know, or is that good? Like sometimes it's over your head, right? And sometimes it's broken down really quick. I had a doctor that one time told me, my daughter always tells me I need to give you the quick version because he was like, well, in the 1970s, we decided this. It's just like, am I sick? Am I, am I dying? Tell me what's going on, right? But very, very different. Tax collectors to doctors, even cut bearers to priests. Cut bearers like Nehemiah. He, that was his job. That was his job. He took the cup and tasted to make sure that it wasn't poisonous and he would give it to the king, was a trusted servant there in his court. And then you have different priests like Ezra and, and different ones that contributed in other ways. And so I say, look at all these different people that God's put together. There's no sense in how all this can work. And yet, if you learn to understand God's truth, it really does come together as one book. Now, the Bible's content, if you think about it, this is what's beautiful about it. It's written over a 2,000-year period. Okay. Now, let me explain this. The Bible itself contains a timeline over 2,000 years, uh, and there's a lot of discrepancy about how long and whatnot. But if you think about the first author that probably wrote anything down, which is probably Moses, the guy who wrote the last thing, and at John, you're not talking about a huge amount of time, about 2,000 years. But um, I'll ask you this. Has... If you're okay, I think everybody here. If we look around the ages, we're, we're, we're a pretty wide variety in this room. Okay, has this world changed in say the last ten years? Anybody? Okay, time time is significant, right? So two thousand years is a significant piece of time. We read Genesis and it seems very far back, and you read Acts and it seems very far back. A person who would read if they were in the time of Acts to look back at Genesis, it's as far as as it could be in our mind, right? So it's two thousand years, a huge period of time. I mean, think about it. What was happening in the biblical landscape 2,000 years ago? Jesus was being crucified, right? A lot of things have changed since then. Um, it was written on three different continents, if you think about it. Uh, written, uh, Bible, different places, people writing in different places. Three different continents uh, were where the Bible was written. And, and also, it's written in three different languages. 
Um, primarily, the Old Testament is written in a language called Hebrew. And the New Testament is all written in Greek. There's a few uh, chapters in the Old Testament that's written in Aramaic, but most part it's Hebrew and Greek, so two different languages, and it comes together. Now, speaking of one, one message. So here, here's the Bible's categories you see that we've got there for you. I've written out the Old Testament there for you to see, for us to look at, because uh, there really are four categories in the Old Testament. And what we're going to do in the, the coming weeks is, this is kind of once again studying the table of contents, but next week, we're going to start picking up a particular way when you read uh, narratives. Narrative means a story, right? So when you read the story of Joseph, or you read the story of Jonah, or you read the story of what Peter did, how can we look at that story and somehow determine if that's going to happen to us in our lives, right? It's a great example. Um, how many of you years ago remember that a Christian book blew up on the scene called The Prayer of Jabez. You remember that book, Prayer of Jabez, okay? So The Prayer of Jabez was a book that blew up. And you go, where is Jabez? And like a two-verse little section in the middle of the Old Testament, Jabez is not mentioned a lot. But what's basically said about it was that Jabez prayed that God would enlarge his territory, and God did. And that's really all it said about Jabez. And so somebody wrote an entire book on making that prayer your prayer of that God would expand your territory. And I'm like... So does that mean I get more land? Like, what does that mean, right? Okay. Well, the book was written, well, however you pray it, just that God would expand your territory. Well, that was a really good message. If you really look back at the timeline of what happened in, in um, I would say, American Christianity, that was really much on the cutting edge of pushing the prosperity gospel forward. About that if you want something good to happen in your life, you pray these certain things, and God's going to have to unlock it if you pray it the right way, which is a lot of dangerous stuff that can be put out because if God doesn't deliver What's the matter? Either God's got a problem or you've got a problem, right? Well, the safe answer then for the preachers and the people who write those things are, well, it's obviously you. You just don't have enough faith. You wouldn't be sick if you had enough faith. You'd have more money if you just had enough faith. And I go, well, what about Jesus? What about Paul? What about guys who were following the Lord with everything they had and their lives were falling apart and they still seemed happy, content, and continuing to go forward? That's where it doesn't connect, right? So with this... If you think about it, the way it is, there, there's a lot of uh, ways that if we're not careful, we, we kind of pick something out. And so what we're going to do next week is look at narratives. When it speaks about someone's story, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen to you, right? I've always said it this way. Everybody wants to pray the prayer of Jabez, but not many people pray the prayer of Mary. Lord, will you enter in and let me birth you with my... Right? Okay, like that, that's not a prayer that I go, this is what you do. You go, I want that narrative, but not that one. Well, who are you to pick and choose which narratives you get, right? Like that, That's kind of somewhat prideful for us to think that we can determine what goes there or not. So we're going to start looking at it, but in the Old Testament, there are four categories that we're going to talk about. First category is what? It's the law, right? Sounds exciting, doesn't it? Okay, right? It's not the place where a lot of us go to. But if we look at Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, these are the five books called the Law or the five books of Moses. Pentateuch, uh, sometimes you hear it uh, written like that, or the Torah, a lot of different words that you can use. But these are the five books of the Law that really talk about the origin of the world and also the origin of the people of God. So within those five books, you've got Adam, you've got Eve, you've got Cain, you've got Abel, right? You've got uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, you, you name it, all this kind of stuff. People being created, Tower of Babel, them uh, going into Egypt, getting rescued out of Egypt. Ten Commandments then starts in Exodus chapter 20. And when you get to Exodus chapter 20, the majority of Exodus, 
speaks about rules and commandments and certain things. Leviticus is all about rules and worship kind of uh, restrictions and whatnot you're supposed to do. Numbers has a lot of lists of people, a few stories and some other rules. And then Deuteronomy, as we mentioned last week, is this. Just remind you a second time what I've already said, okay? And so within this contains the book of the law. Now, with that, within those categories, you do have certain portions that are narrative, and you also have certain portions that are law-based of here's a rule for you. And here's like one area, Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 21, says a commandment that probably, most likely, none of you in this room has ever broken, okay? I want to encourage you tonight. If you always think, I always mess up in this area, that area, I'm going to give you a commandment I don't think any of you have ever broken, right? Deuteronomy 14, 21, do not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. How many of you feel pretty good about that one, okay? right? I'm good, I'm safe, all right? Now, there's 613 Old Testament commandments, at least one you're doing pretty good on, okay? Now, 612, you might got a ways to go, but there's 613 in there. Now, here's the thing. Anybody here, when you woke up today, of all the things you think you need to do to follow Jesus, you did not think, and make sure, make sure, make sure, make sure, whatever I do today, Jesus, help me not boil a young goat in its mother's milk, okay? You're not thinking that, right? You're not thinking that way. Why? Because you've determined that rule is not for me, Right? But thou shalt not commit murder. Is that still for you? I ain't asking the same book. Same section. Same God given the same commandments. Now how do we interpret which one work for us and which one don't? Because if you don't have the framework, guess what happens? We can pick and choose whatever commandments we want to keep. Discard the ones we don't like anymore. You ever seen a culture that did that? Anybody? <laughs> it's happening right here, right now. So within the Old Testament, the law, there it is. Then you see history, right? This is the place that uh, Deuteronomy kind of ends Moses' story, his portion of it. He dies in the last chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 34, uh, and he passes the baton over to Joshua. Joshua chapter 1 says it this way. People of Israel, they mourn for a long time, and then all of a sudden God says, Joshua, Moses is dead. Get up, <laughs> okay? <laughs> you mourn enough, it's time to get going, right? It's time to go in the promised land. So if you look at it, just a rundown, um, Joshua through Esther kind of follows along through the, the narrative storyline. Joshua talks about the military conquest of them getting into the land, right? End of Joshua chapter 24, he goes, all right, everybody, we're in. I can't tell you what to do anymore, but as for me and my house, I know what we're going to do. We're going to serve the Lord, right? And then Judges chapter 1 says, but all the rest of our houses, guess what we're going to do? We're not going to serve the Lord, <laughs> And judges, it's this cycle of sin that takes place, right? And they just, people continue getting sin, and then God would punish them, and he'd have people to come in like Samson, and people like Deborah, and people like uh, Gideon to come in and help the people out. Then we get to Ruth, right? Ruth is a unique story that we'll, we might get into a little bit later, but Ruth is not, a lot of times people will read Ruth and say, hey, ladies, this is a good way to get a man, okay, like, right, this is a four-chapter book, how you can get a date, it's not exactly what I, I have a nine-year-old daughter, and the way that Ruth, Ruth's uh, mother-in-law, right, who, deceased husband, but all of them are widows, she goes, hey, there's this guy named Boaz, he's really great, here's what I want you to do, he, he, he sleeps over there, just go sit on his bed, and when he wakes up, he'll see you there, and you can start talking to him. I'm never going to tell my daughter, this is how you get a man, okay? Like, that's not going to be, like, this is what I want you to do. Like, this is not a narrative in the sense of, hey, follow these things, and this thing's going to happen to you. What is the story? Well, it's so interesting. 
you're seeing different ethnicities, different groups of people come together, and there's a lineage that's starting in the book of Ruth or being continued. And guess who it is that's leading us to King David, who will eventually lead us to King Jesus. Eventually, right? Here's Ruth sandwiched in there. First and second Samuel talks about when the people of God say, enough's enough, we want a king, and then they get a king named Saul, and that king does not work out so good, and God says, how about one named David? And then, they get, and then eventually uh, you see all of the rise and the fall of King David, right? A lot of stuff, a lot of train wreck in there. Uh, first Kings, you start out with Solomon taking over, and it's not too far in that Solomon starts awesome, ends horrible. There's a civil war that separates Israel and Judah, and then in Second Kings, you have a hard time going, Okay, now this guy's the king over here, and this guy's the king over there, and this one did this, and this one's good, and this one's bad, and it's just bam, bam, bam. He's just like one after the next, one after the next. Then you get to First and Second Chronicles, and you go, I think I've read this before. Because a lot of it's repeated about David and Solomon and some of these kings. It kind of chronicles, it, it archives it together for you in a kind of a, a succinct way. Sometimes you read it and go, this is exactly the same story as in Second Kings. Sometimes it is. Then you get to Ezra and Nehemiah, and what do you find? People have been in exile, okay, historical portion, and they're coming back in, right? Ezra, let's get the temple set up and let's start worship. Nehemiah is, let's build the what? You remember? Let's build the wall. Let's build the wall. Let's build this thing up and get it right. Esther is a unique story. She's one of the ones in exile trying to protect God's people from being uh, a genocide to take place. And why is that book even in there? It's interesting. The book of Esther, the name of God is not in it. Did you know that? The name of God's never in the book of Esther. But all within the background, he, here he is providentially keeping his people safe. Um, then you get to the wisdom literature. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. Now here's what you need to know. Job, chronologically speaking, time speaking. You want to know where Job took place? Around Genesis 11. Okay? It's just a unique story of a guy suffering, but most likely it happened around the time of Genesis 11, Genesis 12. Somewhere around the time of Abraham. But Job is sandwiched there. Why don't you put them right behind Genesis? Because it's not written the same type of way. It's a different genre. It's a lot of poetry, and it's about a unique guy. It does not, listen to this, Job's story doesn't dictate the overarching story of God's people in any kind of way. Make sense? If Job rises or falls, it doesn't change where the nation of Israel went, but it's wisdom literature. Psalms, who wrote most of the Psalms? Anybody remember? David. Whose story is in First and Second Samuel? Now you see where this is happening, right? Different places in the Bible: Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon is is written there, and this is written by mostly by Solomon, who's talked about in First Kings. Now you get to prophecy, uh, Isaiah, all the way through Malachi. I want to let you know something: Isaiah through Daniel are called the major prophets. Hosea through Malachi are called the minor prophets. Why is that? The major prophets are longer, and the minor prophets are guess what? Shorter. Okay. Are they chronologically in order? No, they are not. All over the place. All over the place. So, Jeremiah is speaking to what happens at the end of 2 Kings. Uh, uh, you got folks like Malachi is speaking around the time of Nehemiah. They're kind of just all over the place. And so, what, that's why, once again, a good study Bible helps you kind of keep yourself grounded to know where you are on certain things. Now, turn the page over real quick. The New Testament, Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and what? John, they are all biographies of Jesus, right? If you've ever read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you go, I've read this. I read that story again. And then sometimes it's very different. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels because they're very similar. John is very different. Same person, a lot of some same stories, but 
there are only two miracles that are contained in all four of those Gospels. Did you know that? Only two. One is Jesus feeding the 5,000, and the second is Jesus' resurrection. But a lot of different stories. Some teachings different. We'll, we'll talk about that a little bit, why that is. Acts is unique because it's the only other narrative book. It speaks about a story of people moving and doing things. But then the rest of the New Testament is really letters to the church, even including Revelation is somewhat a letter to the church. But you see Romans and go all the way down to the second column there, Philemon. Those are all the letters of Paul. Okay, Romans to Philemon are all Paul's letters. And if you look at it, Romans through 2 Thessalonians are two groups of people. 1 Timothy through Philemon are two individual people. So you go, is that how they're ordered? They're ordered based on that, and they're also ordered this. Longest to shortest. Okay? The first letter that Paul wrote, in my opinion, is Galatians. The last letter he wrote is 2 Timothy. Okay? Why are they putting that order? They're putting that order just because of the way they kind of work together just size-wise and how they're grouped together around. Is it around a church or is it around a person? Then you go to Hebrews to Jude. Why are they all grouped together? Longest to shortest of people who aren't named Paul. Okay, that's how they're organized, okay? So they're not in order uh, of time-wise. They're all speaking about kind of what's happening really during Acts or after Acts. But these are individual leaders reading, and then Revelation is written by the book uh, by the, the Apostle John, speaking about, and it's apocalyptic in its way. So l- let me go through this, and we're going to unpack a little bit more, but let me just make sure you see this. If you look at the narratives, right, Mark is going to feel different than Colossians. Right? A letter to a guy by the name of Philemon is going to feel different than Revelation. And you've got to have some rules to unpack with how this goes. So we think about the different genres. Realize this. Genre is a category of artistic, musical, or literary composition characterized by a particular style, form, or content, if you will. Okay? So it's a category. It's, it's a way that things are grouped together, things that are like each other in a particular way. So when we think about the Bible genre... It's a particular category of composition characterized by things that are like it. Particular genres used in the Bible are not typically used in our society. So if we think through some of the genres that are here, um, you may read biographies. Okay, The Bible kind of has biographies, but it's a little bit different than the biographies we experience. Uh, I don't know about you, what, what's like if you go, I like to read biographies, and I like to read some fiction, and I also like to read some apocalyptic literature on the side, okay? That may be on your nightstand, may not be, but there's some genres that we don't typically use. If we think about it here on, on this little sample of columns and this kind of stuff, here's the different real genres if you think about it. We looked at categories. But there's things like historical narrative, like the book of Genesis. It tells stories of people that are moving and following the Lord, just like the Gospel of Mark is a story. It's a narrative. Then you get to genealogies, right, which are awesome, okay? Uh, First Chronicles uh, is, is a list of names. And this guy was this guy's dad and this guy's dad and this guy's dad. And you're like, oh, my goodness, why is it important? Because every name's important to God. That's why. Why is Matthew chapter 1? The genealogy of Jesus. And he says, I want to let you know he's a real person. Let me tell you the people that are in his family tree. You think your family tree is messed up? Ain't nothing like his. And look what good came out of it. Starts out the message, right? It sort of gives you this kind of this background. There's uh, places in the Bible called exaggeration or um, hyperbole. Like if you think about like all the different ways that, that sometimes Jesus especially would exaggerate certain things to get a point across, Right? Um, Jesus told a group of people that if your right eye causes you to sin, do what with it? Plug it out, right? Any of y'all ever read in the news where somebody tried to do that literally? I've visited those people before. 
Uh, uh, if your right hand causes you to sin, do what? Sometimes people that I've known, there have been other body parts that have caused them to sin that they decide to get rid of that one as well. Okay? I'm going to take it literally. Literary, uh, literally, what Jesus said. This is why genre is important, folks. Okay? You want to know there's an exaggeration for a point rather than going to the hospital and having to answer a lot of questions later. There's places like prophecy, like Isaiah and Malachi, speaking about something coming and telling the future and telling the truth of what's going to happen. Poetry, like places like Joel and Amos that sometimes use figurative languages and that the message is trying to get across. You don't want to get locked into the literal mindset. Um, there is covenant language of God making a covenant with his people and the people saying what they promised to do as well for God. This is unique language because it's a covenant between two groups of people and to insert ourselves into the middle of it without thinking can be somewhat dangerous at sometimes. Proverbs or wisdom literature, uh, as we spent some time this summer in Proverbs and looking at the book of Job, um, give you a great example, uh, as we mentioned before, Proverbs 22.6 says, Train up a child in the way that he should go. When he is old, he will not depart from it. Has anyone here ever known that you, you knew a child that was trained up well but ended up very poorly? So what does that mean? The Bible says it's going to happen. The Bible says this is the best course of action for you parents if you want that to be the result. Okay? not guaranteeing it's always going to happen but if you got two options if i want my child to love the lord should i train them to love the lord or just do nothing train them to love the lord okay that's the best option for that conclusion to take place psalms and songs obviously psalms that they are worship songs but also in exodus chapter 15 uh pharaoh and his army in the red sea and what happens next they're all celebrating on the side and moses just starts singing this awesome song the lord he has thrown pharaoh and drowned the whole army in the sea and then all of a sudden they get out the tambourines and they start dancing and they start singing it's a wonderful beautiful song uh but it's a unique kind of uh genre you got to be careful of there's letters like first corinthians and second peter written to certain groups of people that were not us initially and we at least have to respect that process and then books of apocalypse, the end of the world, kind of scary kind of motif, right? Like the books of Daniel and the book of Revelation. And so we see how all these different genres look at it. Misunderstanding the genre of a work can result in skewed interpretation, if you're not careful. If you don't understand what a narrative is, or any type of genre, you can find yourself doing things of which you shall not. I mentioned here, um, if you think through it, that... And, and judges and supposed to speak what happens here is that they come in and this place and um there's a guy by, that makes a vow to the lord that the next person who walks into the room he's going to kill right and it ends up being his daughter let me tell you what the bible is not doing that's a narrative portion it's not telling you what to do either okay so and you go well, that's that's a simple example but you go there's no way that that bible is supposed to be saying this hey and follow his example to say, all right, whoever walks in the door next, I'm going to kill. Like, that's telling you what happened. It's not telling you what should happen. Make sense? So you've got to understand those truths. Mislabeling a biblical genre can be an underhanded way of denying the text truthfulness. A lot of times we can kind of push back and say, well, you know, I don't know if it really is this. Is, is the word really teaching us? Is that that important for us to really understand that way? Matthew chapter 12, verses 40 uh, says, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise by the judgment of this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. You go, why is that important? 
Have any of you ever known somebody who thought that the, the story of Jonah was a, a fable or a myth, right? Okay, well, surely nobody could endure being swallowed by a fish and, and spit out three days. That doesn't make any sense. Okay, so it's just a fable trying to teach us a, a, an example of what does it mean to, we need to follow God. Here's the reality. Did Jesus think Jonah was real? Apparently in Matthew 12, 40 he did. If Jesus thinks something real, guess what? I'm with Team Jesus. Okay, that's where I'm going to be. So why would it be? Because here's the deal, folks. Let me be straight with you. If you think that it is too big of a thing for God to allow a man to survive in the belly of a well, how in the world do you think he can survive in the belly of the earth and come back alive? Jonah getting spit out by a well is not the most miraculous thing in this Bible. Jesus rising from the dead is. If you can't believe J Jonah, you can't believe Jesus. That's that simple. I mean, here's one thing. I, it makes sense. Okay, somebody could be somewhat protected, and I, maybe I can see how that can work. Someone to be dead alive. If you can't even believe Jonah, there's no way you can believe Jesus. And so if Jesus says, look, it's not a story. It's not a, it's not a fictitious thing made up. This really happened, and you need to get that in your head because something's about to blow your mind here in a few months when I rise from the grave. If you think that's miraculous, you just wait. And so we got to make sure we know what, what Jesus is really getting after. And the last thing here. Principles for interpreting genres can be misused to excuse oneself from the demands of Scripture. If we're not careful, a lot of times we can push back on what the Word really tells us. Like in Matthew 5.42, it says, Give the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. A lot of times we want to say somewhat like, You know what, I know he said that then, but I don't know if he really means that now. And we want to always find a way out to excuse ourselves from the demands of Scripture because we want to follow the Jesus that only gives us the things we want, not asking us to do the things that will change our lives as well. So this is where we're heading. Got a big picture, understanding of genres. Next week, we're going to start talking about all those narratives of stories that you know about Daniel and you know about David and you know about Jesus and you know about Mary and you know about all these stories that happen. And how do we read that and know how we can safely apply that into our lives and not get caught in some dangerous tactics as well. So tonight, Father, we thank you for the wonderful reminder uh, that your Bible is one book, one story, one narrative, comprised of things that should not go together, and yet they do, and it works. And it is one message telling about the story of Jesus, how you came to save our lives, to save us, to bring us back to life again. And so, Lord, continue to allow us to be students of your word, to accurately handle your word, uh, with accuracy and integrity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Equip Podcast. Make sure to check out rockycreek.church for complete notes and additional resources. You can also subscribe to this podcast and get weekly courses delivered to you. We hope to equip you for the work of the ministry.